So we cut short the uh, chatting session by a little bit uh, because I wanted to make sure that we had enough time today to cover the second precept, which is abstaining from stealing, and the third precept, uh, which is abstaining from sexual misconduct. I see that we have a few newcomers today. This is the uh, fifth talk uh, in this series that I'm doing on Buddhist morality. And so in the first four talks, uh, we covered uh, what Buddhist morality is. Uh, Buddhist morality is really what allows us to be in harmony with ourselves, with our society, and with the true nature of reality. So it's different from conventional notions of morality. And so we uh, explored into uh, what Buddhist morality is and why it's important to take uh, the precepts as a way of developing our morality. And uh, for the last two classes, we spoke about the first precept. For newcomers, this might uh, seem a bit heavy and dry for you, uh, especially when we go into these precepts in detail. Um, so if you could just uh, bear with us uh, for the next 30, 40 minutes. Abstaining from stealing, we have five factors uh, that we have to pay attention to. Just like for abstaining from killing, uh, there was also five. Um, so the first factor is object. So for the object, it has to possess an owner. So in order to break this major precept, it has to belong to a human being or a group of human beings. So if you take any object that's given to you, uh, that's being discarded, that's been abandoned, um, or that's been unclaimed by anyone, then that would not be a violation of the precept. The second is perception. Now, in order to fulfill this factor, you have to perceive the object as belonging to a human being. So if you perceive it as not having an owner, uh, or perceive it as something that's been thrown away by an owner, so that owner no longer owns it, he's discarded it, then there's no offense. The third factor is intention. So again, like in the previous precept, intention is fulfilled if you knowingly and you deliberately steal something. So you have to be aware and conscious of what you're doing. And at the same time, you also have to have a motive to steal. So the intention is really one of the most important factors within these five uh, that determines whether or not it's a major or a minor offense. So even if you perceive something as belonging to someone else, uh, you wouldn't violate this precept if you don't have the intention to steal. So say if you take an object temporarily or in trust for someone, then that doesn't constitute a violation. Uh, and this also applies to situations where you see an item in a place where it might be damaged uh, or it might be stolen by someone else and uh, you keep it uh, for the owner uh, in safekeeping, uh, then that would also uh, not be considered a violation because you did not have the intention to steal it for yourself. The fourth factor is effort. So effort refers to all the steps and actions that you take from the planning all the way to moving the object from its original place. So you have to move the object entirely outside of the space that it occupied. Um, and when that has been fulfilled, then 
then you have uh, completed the effort. Uh, so, say for example, um, we know that most objects, um, if you take it, uh, you would uh, essentially move it from the space that it occupied. But there are a few objects that uh, might not necessarily fall into that category. So say, for example, if you're uh, planning to steal someone's trees and plants. So the effort will be fulfilled as soon as you cut down the trees. Uh, or if you're walking through a customs area in the airport uh, and you're carrying an item that you owe a customs duty on, uh, but you don't pay it, then the effort is fulfilled uh, as soon as you walk past the customs area without paying for it. The fifth factor is uh, what we call value of at least five masakas. Uh, so this requires uh, a little bit of an explanation. And I think the best way to explain what we mean by this is to bring up the story behind how this precept was formulated uh, by the Buddha. So during the time of the Buddha, there was a bhikshu by the name of Danika. And Danika, he began his ordained life practicing with the community of monks. But later on, he decided to practice alone up in the mountains. So he wanted to build himself a little hut where he could live in and uh, work on his practice. So he went to the king's forest looking for, for wood. And when he arrived, the gatekeeper stopped him and asked him what he was looking for. And Danika told him that the king had previously promised the whole community of monks that they could freely take anything from his forest to use. And so the groundkeeper let him in, and Danika cut down a few trees to build his hut. Now, not long after, one of the king's officials in charge of surveying his land noticed that a few trees were missing. And so he asked the groundkeeper where the trees had gone. And so when the groundkeeper told them that Danika, the monk, had taken the trees, the official immediately informed the king. And the king ordered for Danika to appear before him. And so then the king asked him why he had taken those trees. And Danika responded by saying that you, referring to the king, told us that if we ever needed anything from your kingdom, we could take it freely. The king responded, well, yes, that's, I remember saying that. But what I meant was you could take anything that did not belong to an owner. The trees that you took from my forest belonged to me. And so it wasn't right for you to take them. And so the king, he informed the Buddha about what had happened. And so the Buddha formulated this precept saying that an object that belongs to an owner cannot be taken without his or her consent. So then afterwards, when they were determining the severity of the offense, uh, Danika asked the king, so what is the standard uh, for uh, a major offense? And that was when the Buddha asked the king, under your country's laws, what value of stolen goods would bring about the death penalty. And so the king responded that saying, uh, by saying that 
anything more than five masakas would bring the death penalty. And so the Buddha set the standard for violating this precept at five masakas. According to uh, the Buddhist commentary in the Vinaya, uh, one masaka is equal to about uh, four rice grains weight of gold. So that means that five masakas would be equivalent to about 20 rice grains weight of gold. Uh, and if you were to convert it into troy ounces, it would be about 1 24th of a troy ounce. Which means that at today's gold prices, that would be about $50. But what this doesn't take into account is the disparity in purchasing power between what a rice grain weight of gold could buy back then during the Buddhist time and what it could buy now. So it's very likely that it could have bought a lot more back then than what it could buy now. We also have to consider that violating this precept for stealing $50 seems to be overly harsh. Uh, for monks, this precept is what is known as a parajika, uh, which literally means cutting off of the head. So if a monk breaks this precept, it would lead the monk to be dispelled uh, forever from the Sangha order. So it's a very, very serious matter. Um, and so taking $50 seems to be a bit unreasonable uh, to warrant such a significant penalty. That's also why many people have decided to interpret the five masakas in a different way. Uh, they interpret it from the actual meaning that the Buddha had intended when he asked the king, which was how much money, if stolen, would lead to the death penalty. So the definition that many people have adopted now is the amount that would lead to imprisonment, or at worst, the death penalty. Going by this standard seems to be more in line with what uh, the Buddha had originally intended when he first formulated this precept. Now that we know what the five factors are, and as I mentioned before, we need to have all five factors to be present in order for uh, this precept to be violated. Uh, if any one of the factors are missing, uh, then it's not a major offense. Uh, at worst, it's a minor offense which can be repented. So what are some of the exceptions? Well, the first is uh, object perceived as being given to oneself. So that would be a situation where you misunderstood the owner, you thought that he or she gave you something when he didn't really have the intention of giving it to you. Uh, that would be an exception. The second, object perceived as belonging to oneself. So you thought that something was yours when it really wasn't. The third, object taken out of familiarity with another person. Uh, this requires a bit of an explanation. Um, this exception really depends on how close you are with that person. So the key requirement is if that person finds out uh, that you took his or her item and not only is he not angry, but he's happy that you took it, then there's no violation. This would usually apply uh, to most of your family members. Say you went to visit your family members and uh, you saw some fruits uh, on their dinner table and you took some to eat without first getting their permission. 
So if they would be happy to see you eat them, then there would be no violation. The fourth is object taken for temporary use. So say uh, you take your friend's car out without first asking for his permission, but you intend on giving it back to him as soon as you're done with it. So in that case, it would be no violation uh, because uh, you had every intention of returning it to him. You didn't have the intention of stealing it. Uh, and so that would be no violation. Uh, you might have a pretty angry friend, but uh, no violation. The fifth is object perceived as having no owner. So say, for example, uh, you see something outside of the trash room in your apartment building that's been left out there for a few days. Uh, and so you conclude that it's been discarded by the owner, that it's treated as garbage. And so you take it for your own use. Uh, but then uh, a few days later, uh, you find out that uh, the owner uh, forgot about the item when he placed it outside the trash room. And so he did not have the intention of discarding it. Uh, but he, uh, he still uh, had uh, a perceived ownership of the item. In that case, because you didn't perceive the item to have an owner at the time you took it, then that would not be a violation. So what are the consequences of failing to uphold this precept? So I have three here. The first is falling into the three evil realms. So there's mention in many of the sutras, uh, especially the Siddhagarbha Sutra, that uh, stealing things from humans, and in particular stealing things from uh, the three jewels, so the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha will lead to a rebirth in one of the lower realms of existence. So either in the ghost realm, the animal realm, or the hell realm. The second is uh, poor and destitute. So when we commit an act of stealing, what we're doing is we're really depriving someone of their possessions, of something that they value. So in turn, by the law of cause and effect, this will lead us to live in a state of deprivation. Uh, and so those who regularly commit stealing or theft will be stricken with poverty and misfortune in their future lives. And maybe even in this life, uh, depending on how strong that karma is. The third is unable to retain possessions. And so you might encounter some people in your life who work really hard to make money, but somehow the money never seems to stay with them. So they might make a lot of money and accumulate a lot of wealth, which means that they must have practiced charity in their previous lives, but for some reason they're not able to hold on to that money. Uh, they might get cheated by their business partner or by a con artist. Uh, their possessions, like their home and other valuables, might get destroyed by a natural disaster, uh, or it might get stolen by thieves. Uh, their assets might get seized by corrupt officials, or uh, their kids might squander away all their money. So people who experience these kinds of retributions likely did not uphold this precept well in their previous lives. What are some of the uh, benefits of upholding this precept? The first is, uh, rebirth in the human or heavenly realm up, to, up into enlightenment. So as I mentioned before, 
in order to be reborn as a human, you have to at least uphold one of the precepts. Uh, if you want to be reborn in the heavenly realms, you need to practice the ten virtues. Uh, and so, um, upholding this precept could potentially qualify you for a rebirth in the higher realms um, up until enlightenment. Wealth and prosperity. So, abstaining from stealing is really another way of saying that you respect and wish to protect the property of other people. Uh, and if you have this wholesome intention to do so, then by cause and effect, naturally that leads other people to respect and protect your own property. Uh, and if you take it a step further and you actively practice generosity, uh, you contribute to the material well-being of other people, uh, then wealth and prosperity will very naturally come your way. So we should know that if we want to live in comfort and have financial stability, that uh, it's not enough just to practice generosity, but we also have to uphold this precept of not stealing. Otherwise, whatever wealth that we require won't stay with us for long. Uh, and so we need to learn how to abstain from stealing and practice, uh, stealing uh, and practice generosity uh, to be wealthy and, and prosperous. The final one is uh, no fear and worries. Abstaining from stealing not only gives you uh, material well-being, but it also gives you mental well-being. Uh, someone who regularly commits stealing is always on the run, is always uh, afraid and fearful that they might get caught, uh, and they're always living in fear and worry. So that's why if we can uphold this precept, then we can always be at peace and uh, live without any fear of anyone uh, taking or ruining our possessions. If you notice, some people have a pathological fear of getting their things ruined or stolen, uh, or they think that uh, people are always suspicious of them. Uh, they get paranoid about things very easily. Uh, if people suffer from those conditions, then it's very likely that in their previous lives, they did not uphold this precept well. Uh, the karma associated with stealing is still very strong in their minds. Uh, and so they have a very difficult time trying to find any uh, peace and stability in their lives. But for someone who has upheld this precept well, then they really don't have anything to fear or worry about. Um, they live completely at ease with themselves. Uh, and they experience uh, deep uh, mental well-being. So that covers uh, the second precept, abstaining from stealing. And so before uh, we leave for today, I wanted to cover the third one as well. Uh, the third one is abstaining from sexual misconduct. And before we talk about what this precept entails, we should first understand why we need to uphold this precept. The Buddha told us that craving and desire is the basis for our suffering and rebirth into samsara. And the strongest type of craving that the Buddha spoke about was sexual desire. It's sexual desire that is really the main culprit uh, for us uh, being reborn into this world. We live in uh, the world of what we call the Kamadhatu. Uh, which means the world of desires. Uh, and in this Kamadhatu, we have the six realms of samsara, 
which I'm sure all of you by now are familiar with. In this Kamadatsu realm, all beings um, still have desire. That's one of the main distinguishing characteristics of beings in Kamadatsu, is that we still have a very strong sense of craving and desire for things. Uh, so we still have a strong craving for uh, material possessions, uh, for sex, for fame, uh, for food, sleep. And above the Kamadatu is what we call the uh, Rupadatu and the Arupadatu, uh, which means the form and the formless realms. Now, the beings in the form and formless realms, they don't have any more desire. And because they don't have desire, they experience a level of bliss and happiness that's far, far greater than what we could ever imagine. If you think about it, desire is really the source of all our suffering. Um, when our minds are filled with desire, there's no way for us to find any sort of peace or happiness in our lives. Uh, because when our mind is always looking for more and desiring for more, we can never really be truly satisfied with what we have. Uh, so it's very much like a leaking water vessel. Now, no matter how much water you put into it, you can never get enough. And there's always this sense of emptiness that's lingering within you. Um, and so when our minds grasp for things like sex, wealth, fame, and status, then we can never really be at peace with ourselves. Uh, we can never find the contentment that we're looking for. And so the Buddha told us that if we want to find true happiness, then we must learn how to let go of our desires. Um, and we let go of the desires that lead to our suffering. Not all desires, because there are certain desires that um, increase your well-being. Um, and so we have to let go of the desires that lead to our strong craving for sexuality, for wealth, uh, for fame, for status. Um, we need to let go of all of the things that destroy our well-being. So the second precept of abstaining from stealing, which we just covered, uh, it covers all the defilements associated with greed uh, for material possessions. And the third precept deals with the defilements associated with sexual desire. And so the Buddha told us that if we really want to liberate ourselves from the prison of samsara, then we have to completely cut off all sexual desire. So that's why the Buddha instructed everyone in the monastic community practicing the path towards enlightenment uh, to observe celibacy. This includes all the monks and the nuns in the Sangha community. Um, but, uh, but this begs the question, what about for all those who are not monastics? Uh, you know, those who still have families and are living the lay life. Um, celibacy might not be possible for these people. Uh, so how can they develop their practice while being involved in a relationship? Um, so this is where the Buddha formulated the third precept, which tells us that those who are involved in a formal relationship with someone, so say your husband or your wife, um, you have to abstain from uh, committing uh, sexual misconduct. Um, so being sexually involved with your husband or your wife is acceptable. Uh, while it's not ideal, because there's 
still elements of sexual craving in the mind when that activity is performed, uh, but it's still acceptable because it, uh, it doesn't lead uh, to unwholesome karma uh, that brings suffering to other people. You can think of this third precept as a convenient method uh, for practicing the Buddhist path. Um, obviously the best is to abstain from any sort of sexual activity, uh, but if it needs to be done, um, then um, at least you have to observe this precept of uh, abstaining from committing sexual misconduct. And so let's take a look at what we mean by sexual misconduct. So sexual misconduct is committing a sexual act with someone other than your wife or husband. This would also include uh, common law marriages uh, where that person might not be uh, legally recognized as your husband or wife, but to the eyes of uh, everyone around you, they see you uh, and the other person as a married couple. Um, so any sort of sexual relationship with your husband or your wife, whether it be legal or in a common law marriage situation, uh, would not be a violation. And so before we talk about what sexual misconduct is, uh, we have to first understand what a sexual act is. So in order for a sexual act to be fulfilled, you have to fulfill two conditions. Uh, one is indulgence in passionate desires. So letting our passions and emotions freely run without any sort of restraint. Uh, letting your mind follow its moods and uh, not doing anything to restrain yourself from indulging in uh, sensual pleasure. And the second is uh, consummation of the act uh, physically through intercourse. Now, when these two conditions are fulfilled, then the sexual act has been performed. And when that act is carried out with someone other than your wife or husband, then that is considered a violation. And so just like the previous precepts, uh, we have uh, factors. Uh, and uh, if all of these factors are fulfilled, then that would be classified as a major offense. The first factor is location. So, uh, so the location refers to where in the body that sexual act is received. Um, and uh, I apologize if uh, the terms that I bring up uh, give you some discomfort, but we have to go over this. The locations, uh, there's two for men that would constitute a major offense. Uh, so the first would be uh, the anus and the second would be the mouth. Uh, for women, there are three. So uh, the first would be the vagina, the anus, uh, or the mouth. Other than mouth-to-mouth -mouth contact, which uh, is a medium offense, that wouldn't be a major offense, uh, that can be repented. Uh, any other combination would be considered a major offense. The next factor is contaminated mind. So you have to knowingly give rise to thoughts and feelings of passion and sexual desire to fulfill this factor. If the act is performed while you're unconscious or while you're sleeping and you don't know what's going on, then that's not a violation. The third factor is effort. Now, effort refers to all the steps and actions that you take to uh, perform that act. Uh, so for, from preparing to perform the act up until uh, the act has been carried out. Contact 
uh, is the final factor. And it's important that we understand that the uh, Buddhist standard for contact is much more stringent uh, than what one would normally interpret as contact. Um, if the sexual organ enters into the other person, even if just to the extent of a sesame seed, so, um, so that means just barely entering into the other organ, um, just to the extent of a sesame seed, then that would be considered fulfilling this factor. And so when you have all four of these factors uh, present uh, in that situation, uh, then a major offense would be committed. So let's take a look at some of the exceptions. Uh, if you're forced into a sexual act uh, through rape or sexual abuse, uh, and as long as you don't experience any sort of pleasure during that act, then that's not an offense. Uh, if you're asleep or unconscious while the act is being performed on you, then that's also not an offense. Uh, and finally, uh, like in the other two precepts, if you perform the act while in a state of hysteria, so hysteria is defined as um, seeing excrement, you reach for it like it's fragrant sandalwood, or seeing gold, you reach for it like it's fire. Um, that's a standard that's been set in the Buddhist literature, uh, then that uh, would also not be a violation. So what are some of the retributions for failing to uphold this precept? Well, the first, like the other two, uh, falling into the three evil realms. So again, the Kisitagarbha Sutra details all of the retributions very clearly. Uh, and according to that sutra, one who regularly commits sexual misconduct, will be reborn after his death uh, into the animal realm uh, as a sparrow, pigeon, or a duck. And really, when you come to think of it, this makes a lot of sense. Um, a lot of people, they don't really understand the dangers of indulging in sexual desire. And they think that sex is normal and that it's um, what makes us human. Uh, but really, it's not. It's not what makes you human, but it's what makes you really an animal. Um, I mean, what do animals do? You know, really all that they do is they look for food and sex. They eat to stay alive uh, and to have enough energy uh, to find a mate to reproduce with. Um, and that's, that's really all they do. They don't have the you know, higher mental capacities uh, like humans do to, do to do much more. And so, Someone who has a very strong uh, sexual drive and doesn't do anything to curb it is, is really in a very dangerous situation. Um, they risk the chance of being reborn as an animal in their future lives. Um, when your sense of sexuality is very strong, when your consciousness is always giving off that kind of energy at that wavelength, then naturally it will find its way into a place that is also at the same wavelength. Uh, and the animal, animal realm is really where sexuality is strongest. Um, so we really have to understand that it's sexual desire that makes us crude and lowly beings. Uh, as you progress to the higher realms, so say the heavenly realm or uh, the form and the formless realms, um, the sexual drive progressively dies down. 
Um, and in the form and the formless rounds, uh, you don't have any desire at all. All sexual craving uh, and uh, desire um, has been cut off uh, when you get to those realms. And uh, the level of happiness and bliss that they feel um, in those realms is, is far greater than um, what you can ever get from some sort of sexual experience. Uh, and so it's important that uh, we understand that we're beings in samsara, and so we do have these desires, but we have to do our best to curb them um, and restrain ourselves from indulging in them. So according to Buddhist literature, another retribution that you might face in your future life is being with an unfaithful partner. Uh, now this is really just cause and effect working itself out. You know, if you were unfaithful to your partner in this life by committing sexual misconduct, uh, then naturally there's a debt that has to be repaid. And uh, that debt may possibly be repaid in your future life um, by uh, your partner being unfaithful to you. Same applies to the next one, which is family problems. Uh, obviously this is something that affects the present life, uh, but also extends to future lives as well. Uh, people who commit sexual misconduct they not only destroy the peace and harmony within the family, but also uh, in the other family involved. Uh, and so like the previous one, being unfaithful, uh, there's a debt that has to be repaid. Uh, and uh, it has to be repaid in some form or another. And so in the next life, uh, that person might always be in a state of discord with his family members. They might get into arguments frequently. Uh, they find it very difficult to find any sort of uh, peace and harmony within the family. And so what are some of the benefits? So the first uh, is rebirth in the human or heavenly realms up into enlightenment. We should know that, uh, as I said, sexual desire is really what keeps us from progressing into the higher realms. Uh, and so if we curb our desires by at least not committing sexual misconduct, then we potentially qualify ourselves to be reborn in the higher realms. Uh, respect from those in the human and heavenly realms. So we know that someone who is faithful to their partner and who upholds morality is respected by their family and friends. Uh, but the beings in the other realms, so the heavenly devas and even the ghosts and the spirits, uh, they can easily distinguish if you've upheld this precept well. So the Vinaya literature uh, brings up many examples of people who have uh, faithfully observed this precept and the many benefits associated with it. Um, for example, one of them is uh, a widow who lost her husband to an accident um, but who vowed to maintain her chastity and to not marry again, not have a relationship with anyone ever again. And one day when she stepped into a haunted house full of hungry ghosts, um, with only a few words of admonishment telling them to leave in peace, uh, the spirits left immediately. Um, and if you remember, uh, a few talks ago, I uh, brought up the story of uh, the, the Arahat, uh, the 500 Arahats and the dragon. Uh, and this is very similar. Um, that Arahat had spent countless lifetimes upholding the precepts down to the finest detail. Um, and because of the greatness of his virtue, 
he was able to tell the dragon to leave when 500 arahats who use their supernatural powers uh, cannot even move that dragon by a single inch. Uh, and so we can see that beings from the other realms, so the heavenly devas and the ghosts, uh, they can tell if you observe this precept well. Uh, and if you uphold it well, then not only will they uh, respect and, they, and listen to you, uh, but they might also actively protect you um, in times when you face trouble. And finally, we have continued development on the path to enlightenment. So upholding this precept allows us to continuing uh, to develop our, our path uh, to liberation from our sufferings, to enlightenment. Um, someone who doesn't uphold this precept is really placing a big impediment in front of them in their practice. Um, because sexual desire is what keeps us imprisoned in samsara. And it's what perpetuates the cycle of life and death. Um, so if we uh, want to put an end to life and death, then we have to observe uh, this precept. So that uh, covers very quickly uh, the third precept on abstaining from sexual misconduct. And in the last talk, uh, next class, I'd like to cover the final two. And that will uh, wrap up uh, this series.